0: Hi, welcome to the Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, reporters under threat and what happens when the rest of the world moves on. We all celebrated in May when the two Reuters reporters, Walone and Kya So U, were set free. They had been held in Myanmar for 500 days and they were held for their reporting on a massacre there, and their case sort of galvanized the journalism community around the world. There was a hashtag campaign on social media. Reuters really aggressively, and I think impressively, sort of pushed for their release. There were people in the White House and in the State Department who were sort of pulled into this campaign, and there was great celebration when these two reporters were released appropriately. So one of the ways they celebrated was they came to the Pulitzer Prize lunch at Columbia where they were honored there. And it was a great story. So the question is, what about other reporters in Myanmar who are similarly under threat? Tammy Kim did a great piece for CJR a week ago about a journalist named Sui Wen, who has been held there under defamation charges and sort of put a spotlight on the fact that Once the focus goes away on these two prominent writers, reporters, there's still a lot of other people who are under threat. Uh, Tammy, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's terrific that you're here, and it was a a great story, Um, and one I I wasn't familiar with, so I, I, I really appreciate it. Tell us about Sui Wen and who he is and what he was charged with.
1: The is one of Myanmar's most prominent bilingual investigative reporters and editors. He currently runs sort of investigative news outlet magazine called Myanmar Now. And um, he has actually, this isn't his first run-in with the Myanmar government. He was imprisoned as a student activist in the late 1990s. You know, then he turned to journalism and has always had a somewhat fought relationship with the Myanmar government. But in this most recent case, what happened is, in the course of some reporting around the Rohingya crisis, um, which of course is the minority Muslim group that has been subject to what some are calling ethnic cleansing and genocide, he was reporting on the assassination of Kony, who was Suu legal advisor. And there's a radical monk in Myanmar called Wiratu, who is very anti-Muslim, um, Islamophobic, and he praised the assassination of this Muslim advisor. Uh, Myanmar now ran a story about this, and then Sui Win posted it to his Facebook and added a comment saying Wiratu is in violation of Buddhist law by inciting this sort of violence. The Myanmar defamation law is, is very peculiar in that anyone has standing to use it. So in this case, a follower of Wiratu, the monk, sued Sui which sort of translated into a criminal
0: case. And we should say that Sui was first arrested on this particular case just over two years ago, and he, yeah. he's been continuously going to court hearings at great expense and trauma. What's the time frame for some kind of resolution here?
1: Finally, there was his lawyer applied for the, the case to be dismissed because nobody was ever showing up in court, um, the witnesses on the other side. That doesn't mean that Sui Wen isn't still nervous about what he says or what um, his staff at Myanmar now says or publishes towards the end of the process of of us publishing the piece at CJR. um, Sui Wen fell out of contact right after we published the story. He sent me a note saying, you were asking such specific questions during fact checking that I actually got nervous you were working for the Burmese military.
0: (laughs) So do you think that there was a tie between the release of the Reuters reporters in May and the dismissal of his case in July?
1: It's it's really hard to say because um, both geographically and in terms of kind of the attention that the cases were getting, they were really on – separate ends of the spectrum. I do have to think, though, that, of course, the, the international tension around the Reuters case did give uh, other journalists and dissidents who were being persecuted a bit of an opportunity to at least have their cases highlighted in the international media. Mm-hmm. But for Sway was, he was never quite sure how to play that. I mean, when he was in court in Mandalay, for instance, he made a habit of going alone just with his attorney because he was worried that if he made too big a stink about it, it would actually be worse for him. And so I think it's also an illustration of how a local outlet, um, a Myanmar outlet. The strategy around that would would be very different from, um, say, for Reuters or for another Western outlet.
0: Yeah, and what's so interesting about this case is that his journey through the legal system was going on at precisely the same time that the mm-hmm. Reuters one was going on. And, and again, like I take nothing away from the Reuters effort, which I thought was extraordinary in getting their people yeah. people out. But what did that look like to him? I mean, here he is, You know, we here you have these people getting amazing attention and he's just going there alone and nobody is showing up. Did he did he think that the Reuters case could could help him or did he see it as a kind of drain of attention or or whatever?
1: He's a very humble person and I don't think he would comment on that. I mean, first of all, the Reuters reporters were imprisoned the entire time. He he was quite concerned that the Reuters case had been prosecuted under a national security law, which did distinguish it from his, you know, quote, sort of -of run-of-the-mill defamation case. The Reuters case was unusual in that the law invoked was not the usual one invoked when the government goes after journalists. Um, So he thought it it could be distinguished on those grounds. I think he he was very clear that a Western case will just get a different kind of attention. Um, And he sort of didn't expect otherwise for himself.
0: Yeah. And to me, that's sort of the point here is that, like, how do we give the same sort of attention to all of these other people who are being charged or who are actually in jail in, in terms of the question of, like, is it good to shine the spotlight on cases like this or is it better to sort of let people work in the background quietly? Do you have a, a view on that yourself?
1: I think for the most part, it, it may be better for people like Sway and, you know, I spoke with a couple of other journalists who had... Um, done some time in Myanmar have been persecuted. They weren't always comfortable and didn't always think it advantageous to have the spotlight shown, shown on them precisely because they and their families are in Myanmar full time. They're going to need to continue working there. and of course that's true for Walloon and U as well, but they sort of you know having the kind of aegis of a large Western organization I think helped them. Yeah, for people like Swaylin, I think his attitude was sort of, this is something I'm going to have to deal with for my whole life, and I need to be in a position where I can continue to have some sort of relationship with whoever the ruling government is, both the civilian and the military arms. Of course, in the Reuters case, their sentence and the conditions of their confinement were such that it it just was so egregious. You know, their colleagues were very committed to that case. But I think it has to be a very case-by-case decision and depends on the, the question of whether the journalist is sort of there full-time.
0: What is your read on the situation in Myanmar now in terms of press freedom?
1: Really, nearly all of the journalists I spoke with said that conditions were better before Aung San Suu Kyi took power over the mm-hmm. country. And of course, that's you know counterintuitive given The position that for so many decades she's held in in our imagination as a you know fighter for peace in her country, democracy in her country, but what their attitude is is you know in the transition coming right out of the military junta. So this is about 2010ish. The government was experimenting with what would it look like to kind of just have an openness, and so there was a rushing back of journalists and outlets to come in and occupy the space of a press. With the Rohingya crisis being what it is in the west of the country, I think Aung San Suu Kyi and the military are very nervous about what sort of attention they're going to get. And obviously, a lot of people want to be investigating the atrocities occurring there. So what has come with that is a crackdown on press. So I don't think it can really be described as as a completely free situation. I mean, that said, that's, probably true in most places that are undergoing a democratic transition. Of course, these things take time, you know, culturally and logistically, Uh, but it does seem to be a very difficult time. And 2019 in particular has seen a ramping up of prosecutions.
0: Yeah, it's something that we think about a lot at CJR because the the sad truth is that these kind of crackdowns on press freedom are going on all over the world. And Mm -hmm. so the question is, how do you prioritize um, right. one country versus another country versus another country? And how does the international community that only has so much bandwidth for this stuff categorize? I mean, have, have you, do you have any theories on like patterns, like what what makes some cases more resonant than others?
1: I wish I knew. <laughs> I mean, I think with the Reuters case, it seems like there was a confluence of factors that, that made this particularly, I guess, to use a crude word, um, I guess palatable to the kind of infrastructure of you know, sort of Western human rights, obviously them just, you know, being part of Reuters, you know, they were so clearly set up, um, you know, Mm. to be arrested. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that what they were reporting on was such an egregious massacre of men and boys in Rakhine State. Of course, they also had, like, celebrities involved in their campaign, like Amal Clooney was their attorney, you know, so there were all of these things that people could sort of latch on to. But in the course of reporting the story, um, I did have a lot of interesting conversations with, you know, Human Rights Watch and other human rights organizations. The Advocates, uh, for which are asking themselves real questions right now around what are the limits of the sort of naming and shaming strategy that's always been employed mm-hmm. you know in press freedom and in human rights more generally in you know with all of the the rise of the authoritarian states around the world and crackdowns on speech, have we sort of reached a point of saturation where it doesn't really make sense and isn't being heard? Mm. so I don't know. <laughs> it seems quite difficult right now, especially in Southeast Asia,
0: yeah. What's happening with Myanmar now? Is it is it back on track? I mean, what, are they as active as ever?
1: He is back at work. You know, he did tell me as we put in the, and we put in the story some of it um, that throughout his trial and, and now that it's been resolved, he he did sit down with his staff multiple times to sort of sort out okay, what does this mean for us? How, if at all, do we need to adjust our reporting? Um, and also some interesting questions around what is the difference between our publishing on our site as you know, news qua news versus us posting things to Facebook, because that's generally where people are getting trouble and facing prosecution in Myanmar, because in Myanmar, where the Internet saturation is still fairly uh, low, most people are accessing the Internet through Facebook. And so um, it's almost sort of more important what is raised on Facebook under the auspices of a news organization. So way, when for instance, was telling me about a recent talk he had with his staff where he said, Okay, let's just be really clear. Like, what we post to our individual Facebook pages and the Myanmar Now Facebook page is not journalism. What, you know, the journalism that we're doing on our website goes through editing, fact checking processes, but uh, we have to be extremely careful when we, you know, write things that are just for our posts. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, that's quite interesting. And um, they're certainly not backing away from any investigative work um, on Kyi and on the military, though.
0: Do you, do you know how many other journalists in Myanmar who have active cases against them?
1: The estimates I've heard are a few dozen to, um, in the low hundreds, there is a human rights Group they're called AFEN that has been tracking some of these cases. So we know that there have been, for instance, hundreds of prosecutions under some of the defamation and other laws that are similar to the one that that was used in Swayland's case. And then a fraction of those cases have led to an actual arrest.
0: You know, I I remember I met not terribly long ago with a group of journalists from Turkey, and I was telling, well, yeah, people here are really upset because Trump calls us, you know, they, he uses these terrible names. He calls it fake news. Um, Some of his followers have, have, you know, been really threatening. and, And, you know, frankly, they were like, well, that seems sort of minor. (laughs) <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> they were like we've got real issues here right. yeah. we've got people coming in our newsroom with guns so I, I do think that it's worth thinking about how to prioritize it for for u.s reporters and u.s news organizations
1: i think it is tricky a, a former state department official i spoke with for the story said a very similar thing which is was sort of reducible to american journals should stop whining about conditions here because mm-hmm. there are real press freedom issues elsewhere of course that's that's um you know quite facile. that's it's not really what's going on. I, I think there is proportionality. Um, in it is comp.
0: It is complicated. I mean, we should. We have to caveat this. I mean, there were people killed yeah. at, a, at, a, yeah. at a newspaper in in Maryland, and and there is there yeah. are real threats. But I do think that some kind of sort of, as you say, proportionality or prioritization is is in order, right? Yeah.
1: I mean, I think one thing that I've noticed both in terms of covering, uh, you know, journalists here covering press freedom issues, but also covering things like, you know, journalist unions or journalist work, you know, workers' rights. There's sort of a, a reticence to talk about that sort of thing, because I think we're taught here to think, oh, well, that's, that's sort of um, self-interested, and that isn't really the appropriate thing for a journalist to do to talk about our own struggles. But I think it's Looking at the worsening conditions around the world, it really should call us all to task in terms of, well, actually, this is something that's not only fit for journalistic coverage because it affects human rights, but because it actually will affect, you know, democracy. It will affect our ability to to do our jobs in the future. I spoke with this. Um, activist and journalist in, in Singapore who's quite well known there named Kirsten Hahn. She told me, you know, Singapore just passed a very uh, restrictive uh, law that will impede people's use of social media. And she was saying, you know, when I was campaigning against this, I asked all of these journalists, especially American ones who are, you know, either in Singapore or reporting on Singapore to sign on to this letter. And she talked about how frustrating it was that so few of them would. And usually their response was, well, my outlet won't let me engage in political activities or I don't think this is appropriate for me to do. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that that is something that perhaps needs reconsideration in this moment. And that's something that, you know. For American journalists who, globally speaking, probably are much more privileged, they should be considering and and perhaps expanding their, their thinking around.
0: Well, that was to me what was one of the things that was so interesting about the Reuters reporters case is that you did you did have newsrooms, American newsrooms all over the country you know mm-hmm. really backing and that was the first time I think I've seen yeah. that um, yeah. and so I thought at the time I thought wow this is a kind of a cool moment because there's an awareness that this these threats against the press is a global I mean and I think one of the interesting points about your story is it sort of questions whether what the staying power of that is
1: no and I remember to work at Al Jazeera America and at the time um, that three Al Jazeera reporters were imprisoned in Egypt we had a campaign around them as well and tried to get that to spread and so there are these moments I think where people pick up on that, but I think we're still fighting against a sort of ideological block where we're telling ourselves this is not appropriate uh, mm-hmm. territory. And so and I'm hoping that, you know, we'll also be able to get around cases like Sway in the future that are not necessarily linked to a Western news outlet.
0: When's the last time you spoke to Sway Win?
1: I guess right after the piece published and he seemed to be doing well. I think he was, you know, both trying to get back on his feet and trying to really think about, like, how to do it safely and make it safe for all of his death numbers as well.
0: Yeah. Tammy, this is great. It's great to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much for your time.
0: Tammy's piece is called Myanmar's Other Reporters on CJR.org. Check it out. Thank you for listening. See you next week.